Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka here with Professor Akhil Amar, and not one but two special guests today. So first, let me say hello to Akhil. Hi there. Hey. Okay, with your usual verbosity at uh, at, at the greeting. We, we, we want to spend time on our guests. Come on. <laughs> Indeed. Okay, well, I hope everyone had a happy Thanksgiving, and we're, we're taping this, you know, a couple of days after Thanksgiving, and um, I want to tell the audience right away about, about our guests. Um, first, a little background as to why these great scholars are our guests today. So on our podcast over the last couple of weeks, we've mentioned the fact that uh, cases involving the 14th Amendment, Section 3, and President Trump's, uh, ex-President Trump's um, eligibility for being on the ballot or basically for being disqualified from being on the ballot or from being disqualified from being president, um, let's say, um, have come up in various states. It uh, came up in Minnesota. Uh, and then most recently came up in Colorado. And in Colorado, there was a, uh, a hearing, and one of our experts today testified at that hearing. More on that later. And then the judge, a state district court judge, issued a ruling um, with basically two main findings. One, that President Trump did commit acts which under uh, 14.3 would constitute uh, disqualification in general, but that she issued another ruling that the presidency is not covered uh, under that for reasons relating to her reading of, of 14.3. Um, that's kind of a general uh, approach to it. Okay, so that, that ruling has been appealed to the Colorado Supreme Court, and there's, they're going to, it's going to be oral arguments uh, next week. So uh, we thought that we would try to, even though we've discussed it a little bit in the, in the past, we thought that we would hit it head on with people that really know about it. So today we're really lucky to have with us from, from the University of Indiana, Professor Gerard Magliaca, and from the University of Maryland, Professor Mark Graber. So let me tell you a little bit about each of them. So Professor Magliaca is the Samuel R. Rosen Professor at the Indiana University Robert H. McKinney School of Law. He's the author of four books and about 20 articles on constitutional law and intellectual property. Um, he received his undergraduate degree from Stanford and his law degree from Yale, and he joined the IU faculty after uh, two years at uh, Covington and Burling and one year uh, clerking for Judge Guido Calabresi, on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit. And listeners to our podcast will recall that we had a, an episode talking about uh, Judge Calabresi. Um, so Professor Magliaca's books include the 2007 uh, Andrew Jackson and the Constitution, and very notably for our purposes, 2013's uh, American Founding Son, a biography of John Bingham, that focuses on his crucial role in drafting and passing the 14th Amendment. Professor Magliaca has won numerous awards for his teaching, including the Indiana University Trustees Teaching Award, and his public uh, intellectual role includes frequent posts to balkanization and concurring opinions, as well as uh, on C-SPAN, where his books have been 
featured on uh, Book TV on several occasions, and you can catch that because Book TV recycles from from time to time, um, fortunately. So I will welcome both professors together. So let me also uh, introduce Professor Mark Graber, who's the University System of Maryland Regents Professor. That's one of only seven Regents Professors in the history of the University System of Maryland, and the only Regents Professor on the uh, UMB campus. He's uh, taught at the University of Maryland since 1993 in one capacity or another, including Professor of Constitutionalism from 2015. He attended Dartmouth uh, and the Columbia Law School, and he also has a, a master's and PhD from Yale in first philosophy and then political science. He's the author of more than 10 books, including uh, 2013's A New Introduction to American Constitutionalism, his most recent book, also very uh, timely for our purposes, is Punish Treason, Reward Loyalty, The Forgotten Goals of Constitutional Reform After the Civil War, which bears directly on our discussions today. So Professor Graber is also the author of over 100 articles and has a separate section of his CV listing his contributions to academic humor. Um, He's been visiting a faculty member at many institutions, including Harvard and the Yale Law School, and has received numerous awards for teaching, for scholarship, and for mentorship. So welcome to America's Constitution, Professors Magliaca and Graber. Thanks. It's great to be here. Thank you. Andy, Akil here. If I could just add one or two quick words of personal welcome. Gerard and I are old friends. Uh, I think way back in the day, he was actually even one of my students. And Mark and I go way back. Here's one of the ways we go way back, even though we spent less time in, in rooms together. Andy, you mentioned balkanization in connection with Gerard. That's, of course, the website of our dear friend, the great Jack Balkan. And Gerard regularly posts on Jack's blog, on his website, and so does Mark. Balkanization has actually a, a somewhat smaller group of hardcore posters than, let's say, the Volokh conspiracy. But our audience will be very interested, I'm sure, to read some of their postings on 14th Amendment Section 3 and on many other issues. And their website of, of choice is, or at least includes, Jack Balkan's great site, Balkanization. Of course, Jack was on our program talking about Section 4 of the 14th Amendment. Today, we're going to be talking about Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. But a big shout out also to our mutual friend, Jack Balkan, who has helped bring us all together. Yeah, so um, what we'll do is we have our show notes and we will, I'll put together the various postings that you guys have made in recent weeks. Um, uh, and months on this subject from balkanization. I'll put them together into one PDF and we'll put that on the website. But also we encourage listeners to check out balkanization in general. Uh, to, because And who knows, between now and... I mean, uh, Gerard has a post today on, uh, on, on balkanization, I noticed. Um, so, you know, who knows, between now and when you listen to this podcast, there may be more, more postings. And the reason, Andy, we reached out to them in particular, we're going to hear again, um, uh, audience members, please be assured, from Mike Paulson and Will Bode, who started the whole thing, wrote, writing a very important and much-noticed article on the topic. It's been posted on SSRN and will be coming out of the University of Pennsylvania Law Review. We had them on for two 
90-minute episodes, and they're going to come back. But for now, especially because we're especially focused on Section 3 and the issue of the presidency, really the folks, in my view, who have done the most important work on this topic are uh, our current, in addition to Bode and Paulson, are our current two guests, and much of the important work that they've done has been uh, showcased, at least summarized, some cases even more than summarized, um, on the balkanization website. So the reason audience members you're hearing from Gerard and Mark is because they're scholars who have put their ideas into very precise written form, shared them with the world on balkanization first, and now will be talking with us about some of those um, ideas. So, you know, one thing that's, uh, as a scholar, I'm, I'm just wondering, you know, last year, Akhil and I, uh, well, Akhil and his brother, and I had a minor role, um, worked on this amicus brief on Moore versus Harper, and then we went down to the oral arguments, and we, you know, were kind of involved with debate, and then there was, an, you know, an opinion. And so, so here you're actually, it seems like your, your work, which, you know, you began years ago, is kind of in prime time now. I mean, is that something that happens frequently in your career? I mean, is, is that a, a, a particularly uh, gratifying experience, um, Mark and Gerard? Well, it's never happened before, so, so it's gratifying just to have it happen once. But, uh, and, it, and it's also a complete accident, right? That is, I got interested in Section 3 because Mark was interested in Section 3. And he had told me that he was doing research on it as part of his book project. So this was back in 2020. So I thought, oh, I'll write about a different aspect of Section 3 from the sort of issue he was focusing on. And then I came up with a draft paper and put it up on SSRN in December of 2020. And then lo and behold, it becomes an important issue in contemporary law. So so that was that's been very strange and certainly something I wouldn't expect to repeat itself. I never thought I would do amicus briefs or certainly ever testify in a significant case, right? And I and I very much doubt that that will ever happen again. Uh, but uh, for for what it's worth, it's it's been uh, it's been very interesting so far. And what Gerard just said, just to put a pin in it, is he wrote about he started writing about this after talking with Mark before January sixth, twenty twenty one. That's that's you know what I was taking away from your timeline, Gerard. Right. And Mark, um, is this something new for you to, to have this kind of real-time test of your theories and, and, and your scholarship? Well, to give everyone an example of just what a wonderful political prognosticator I am, I finished my chapter on Section 3 a week before the insurrection. And the first sentence was, Section 3 is the most forgotten provision of the forgotten provisions of the 14th Amendment. I then went into a long description of why, even compared to Section 2 and Section 4, what I was interested in was why was Section 3 so crucial to the Reconstruction framers when it plays no role, or so I thought, it was playing no role in the last 150 years. What was their understanding of the Constitution? And lo and behold, you know, it, it does give something to the adage, if you don't know how to stay in style, wear the same suit for 40 years and just hope one year it comes back in style. And suddenly, 
the world came to section three. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's an interesting experience. It's also, I think Gerard may have this too, given we are primary historians. So that a provision doesn't have contemporary significance was interesting to us precisely. Why was it so important then and not now? What was different about how they thought from the way we thought? When a provision then gets in the news, the issue is what's the same about what they thought and what we think? And so that's been an interesting challenge in some ways, changing the question we would normally ask if the world went as we anticipated. Andy, just one final thought on that. In a very recent episode, Vic Amar and I, and in talking about Moore versus United States and the amicus brief we filed, talked about how much of that amicus brief came just directly from a book, a book of constitutional history that I did several years ago. And I didn't do the section of that book on the Hilton case about the federal tax power in connection with some pending litigation. There really wasn't any pending litigation at that moment. I was just trying to get the history right. The same way that Mark just said, well, he's just trying to get the history right as a scholar. And Gerard just said, well, I'm just trying to get the the constitutional history right as a scholar because they're both constitutional historians and have written books on constitutional history on other topics. And when Vic and I were talking about this in the Moore versus United States episode that we had, we said, actually, there, and in a way, it's nice that we thought about this issue before it arose in a contemporary context, because at least in our hearts, we could be pretty sure that we didn't try to fudge it this way or shave it that way in order to come out for our favorite political candidate or against our disfavored political candidate. This is just what we thought when we were just doing the constitutional history straight. And then, oh my gosh, the Supreme Court wants to hear about the federal tax power in Moore versus United States. Or, oh my gosh, it wants to think about um, the role of state constitutions in federal elections in Moore versus Harper. Or today, oh my goodness, courts and, and other governmental actors seem to be interested in this provision that um, was like the Rip Van Winkle, the Sleeping Beauty provision that seems to be uh, the Snow White provision that seems to be uh, dormant for oh so long. Of course, even at the time that they wrote the 14th Amendment, they had their own version of that, right, in the uh, in the Republican government clause, which I believe they called the sleeping giant of the Constitution. So, yes. Um, okay, so let's let's talk about the 14th Amendment, Section 3, and, and you know, what, what difficulties some people are having in interpreting it, and whether you think it's straightforward or what the issues are. And I think we should start with the text of the amendment. So I'll read it um, aloud, and then we can, we can go from there. So again, the, the, this is Amendment 14. There are five sections, and this is the third. Um, no person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president and vice president or hold any office civil or military, under the United States, or under any state, who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress, or as an officer of the United States, or as a member of any state legislature, or as an executive or judicial officer of any state, to support the Constitution of the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same, 
or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. But Congress may, by a vote of two-thirds of each house, remove such disability. So that's the, that's the section three. And of course, this was passed in the aftermath of the, of the Civil War. It's part of the Reconstruction Amendments. If we're thinking about this amendment in terms of the question before us uh, these days regarding whether President Trump might be disqualified from office, from the office of the presidency uh, under that, what do you see as the, uh, as the big questions that have to be answered? Putting aside for a moment, let's say, the question of what his actual conduct was. But is in terms of whether or not, if he engaged in the conduct that the amendment says you're not supposed to do, if he engaged in that conduct, what is it about, about the amendment that might be controversial as to whether or not he, he, he might be disqualified? Well, I mean, the first question would be, was what happened on January 6th an insurrection within the meaning of Section 3? And we now have two ju- judicial decisions that say that it was and none that say that it wasn't. You have one from New Mexico in which Mark was the expert witness from last year where a county commissioner was uh, ousted from office under Section 3, where the court concluded that that was an insurrection on January 6, 2021. And then the decision from Colorado, which said that January 6th also was an insurrection. And indeed, there's really nobody writing an article or uh, commenting that there was it was not an insurrection, right? That some understanding of Section 3 means that what happened on January 6th wasn't an insurrection. So, okay, so that's the first thing. Then you have the question of, all right, how should we understand someone's uh, participation in the insurrection? What does it count to, or what does it mean to be engaged in insurrection? And there too, you have now two judicial decisions that have found somebody to have engaged in insurrection okay, of the January 6th insurrection. And again, you have no real quibble being made uh, from, say, a draft paper or something saying that the definition of engaged is narrow or wouldn't cover the kinds of things that uh, the former president was alleged to have done. So those are the, kind of the first two things that sort of would come up, right? And, and both of those are ones on which we're not having too much crosstalk even among, say, scholars, about what it meant then and how it might be applied now. So I think that's, a, that's an encouraging sign that we're kind of getting things a little narrowed down to the things that might be more challenging or more controversial. There, there was also an issue it's worth bringing up at the outset, and that is, for a long time as People understood the 14th Amendment as consisting of Section 1, dot, 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 Section 5. There was a notion that the United States was an example of a country that had rejected something called militant democracy. Militant democracy is the idea that you sometimes limit certain kinds of free speech elections when doing so actually promotes democracy. What Section 3 demonstrates, both the text and the history, that wasn't the 19th century view. The 19th century was committed to a version of militant democracy. And in many ways, as we talk about the issue with our friends, most of it comes down to not 
Is Donald Trump covered by Section 3? But whether militant democracy and Section 3 are a good idea, so either we should pretend Section 3 doesn't exist, or any reading that narrows Section 3, no matter how implausible, we ought to adopt because it would be undemocratic to adopt the understanding of democracy in Section 3. So I think you know what you're talking about there is is uh, reminiscent of uh, what a recent column in the Washington Post discusses uh, by uh, Sherilyn Eiffel um, that uh, and it's titled "Why Are U.S. Courts Afraid of the Fourteenth Amendment Because It's Radical?" Is is that correct? I mean that that that's in the same vein that uh, in in a sense the the the, the power of the Fourteenth Amendment, Section Three, is something that the that courts are are afraid of or or trying to stay clear of. Gerard, you you wrote a piece actually about this. I know, and maybe Mark as well, basically saying we've seen this movie before with other sections of the Fourteenth Amendment initially not being taken seriously by courts, conservative courts who actually didn't quite share the sweeping vision of the so-called radical Republicans who gave us all the sections of the 14th Amendment. At least one of you has written about that, maybe both. Right. I mean, getting the 14th Amendment enforced is the greatest challenge in the history of constitutional law, right? I mean, and there's a reason why Justice Harlan the Elder is such a hero now. It's because he's the only one who, for a long time, took the 14th Amendment seriously. Now, the question is, are, are we going to hold him up as a hero for things that are now settled, right, where it's, it's not controversial anymore to say that he was right in taking the positions that he took? Or, or are we actually going to think a little more about his example when we get to an interpretation of the 14th Amendment for the first time, at least in the Supreme Court or even in the Colorado Supreme Court, on a provision that Justice Harlan the Elder never had to address as a judge? And so, yeah, I think that the idea that getting to, you know, taking the breadth of the 14th Amendment seriously and doing things that are going to be, you know, new, maybe unpopular, that's a perennial problem in constitutional law. And it's going to be it's going to be a problem in the cases going forward. Two things worth noting. Professor Eiffel talks about the radical 14th Amendment. If you actually read the newspaper editorials from Republicans, the week after Congress sends the 14th Amendment to the state, they say the radicals lost. This is a conservative, moderate 14th Amendment. Indeed, the radicals wanted a complete disenfranchisement of everybody who fought for the Confederacy, all they got was, in fact, disqualification for office from the leadership. But it is interesting, and I think Akil has written on this as well, that when we talk about the framers of the 1789 Constitution, they are put on a pedestal. They said it their wise. When we talk about the framers, the Republicans who framed the 1868 Constitution, 
they're considered too radical. Why, why are these framers not given the same, you know, adoration as other framers? Now, it might be, you know, we should look critically at their work as we should look critically at other works. But before we say they're too political, we should ask ourselves, what was their politics? Why did they think they needed to disqualify former Confederate leaders to achieve racial equality, to ensure Americans would enjoy fundamental rights, including for them most important, fundamental democratic rights. So just on that, Andy, I mentioned earlier that Gerard and Mark are experts on Section 3 and have written really powerful stuff, especially in balkanization but they've also written books about the 14th Amendment more generally. And now if we're trying to think about Section 3 in the context of the 14th Amendment more generally, here's a riff on what Gerard said. Okay, the original, and I wrote a book called, way back when, called The Bill of Rights, Creation and Reconstruction. The original Bill of Rights, you see, applied only against the federal government. Congress shall make no law abridging freedom of speech and freedom of the press. Um, and, and Mark wrote a, a book long ago all about free speech and free press rights. But, but uh, the original Constitution limited the federal government. The original Bill of Rights limited the federal government. And the 14th Amendment comes along, and it actually, Gerard thinks, I think, Mark thinks, now the Supreme Court thinks, oh, the 14th Amendment, Section 1, was about applying the Bill of Rights in general, incorporating it against states and localities such that now no state, or for that matter, any subdivision of a state, a city, a county, can abridge free speech or free press or can infringe upon free exercise. No state can uh, uh, violate the free exercise of religion. And no state can have an unreasonable search and seizure regime. States have to abide by principles of public trial and jury trial and confrontation and compulsory process and all the rest. That's called the incorporation debate. Does the Bill of Rights now, is it incorporated against state and localities? And for a long time, courts didn't do that. Oh, that seemed very radical. Courts didn't do that. Today they did, and we've had episodes on how Hugo Black said, oh, you have to do that. I mean, he was right, taking seriously what the the Republicans were trying to do, trying to make sure, for example, that states would no longer be able to shut down free discourse, which they had done. They had made it crime, a crime to criticize slavery, to teach blacks how to read and write. They had shut down black churches and white churches that had criticized the slaveocracy. The framers of the 14th Amendment really did intend to apply the Bill of Rights against the states, but courts didn't do that for a long time. Well, Gerard wrote a whole book about John Bingham a long time ago, not just before the January insurrection, but a dozen years ago, all about John Bingham, who more than anyone was a Reconstruction Republican who really believed in applying the Bill of Rights against the states. And initially, the courts weren't following his lead, even though it's clear that that's what he had put in the amendment and people understood that at the time. There was one great early judge who did understand justice uh, more than anyone else, and it was the first Justice Harlan, John Marshall Harlan. And, but he's in dissent, 
And then Hugo Black comes along later on and he tries to revive it and he's initially in dissent and the Warren court finally takes it seriously. So that's one issue. And Gerard says, listen, the courts initially aren't taking seriously that core provision of the 14th Amendment, Section 1, applying the Bill of Rights against the states. Oh, but Harlan got it right early on and Hugo Black later. And Hugo Black's law clerk was named Guido Calabresi. And Guido Calabresi's law clerk, among others, is named Gerard Magliocca. And Guido was my teacher too, so line of dissent here. Okay, now here's another example. The 14th Amendment, Section 1, was clearly about racial equality. Blacks are equal citizens and are entitled to equal protection. And courts, for a long time, didn't want to take that seriously. And Plessy versus Ferguson is an example of their not wanting to take that seriously. And who dissented in that? That's again, John Marshall Harlan, the elder in Plessy versus Ferguson. And now Gerard says, oh, we all say, oh, we're with him, Brown versus Board of Education. Here's a third thing, broad congressional power to enforce civil rights. That's section five of the 14th Amendment. And initially courts didn't want to take that Seriously, a thing called the Civil Rights Cases of 1883, and John Marshall Harlan dissented in that. He took seriously what they were trying to do. Today, it's a little bit more complicated, but the Warren Court did reinvigorate Section 5 of the 14th Amendment and congressional power. Today's court is cutting back on that just a bit. But what Gerard said and what Mark has said is there were other provisions of the 14th Amendment the courts initially didn't take seriously, and oh, now they do incorporation of the Bill of Rights, um, black equality, congressional power, voting rights, which are mentioned in Section 2 of the 14th Amendment. The courts initially didn't take that seriously. Today, they do to some extent. And Mark and Gerard have both written not just articles and essays and blog postings on Section 3. They've written very powerfully, both of them, not just articles, but books about other provisions of the 14th Amendment that courts initially aren't taking seriously. So it's not a coincidence, it's not a surprise that these two scholars would say, we're not afraid of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, we're going to take it seriously, the way we are willing to take Section 1 seriously and Section 5 seriously and take a close look at what people like John Bingham said and John Marshall Harlan the Elder said, and let's do the same thing for Section 3 that we're willing to do for Section 1 and Section 5, other provisions. And that's a broader context for Sherilyn Eiffel's recent and excellent piece um, op-ed in the Washington Post. If, if I could extend that, and that is we shouldn't treat Section 3 and Section 1, and for that matter, the 13th Amendment, as these three independent provisions, you know, that, gee, they, they wanted candy, they wanted a train, they wanted this. But one of the fundamental purposes of Section 3 and Section 2 is the Reconstruction framers, particularly people like Representative Thaddeus Stevens of Pennsylvania, very much resembled the original framers in one sense. They believed unless you got the politics right, you could put wonderful substantive liberties in the Constitution, it wouldn't matter. So if racists were on the Supreme Court, if racists were in Congress, you could write no white supremacy as much as you wanted, but Dred Scott taught them that it would be interpreted against you. A crucial feature of both Section 2 and Section 3 is that when popular majorities 
when candidates favor anti-slavery, when they favor the full panoply of rights that are involved in being a free citizen of the United States, the slaveholding minority of the South with their democratic allies would not block them. That the way you get your policy preferences is through voting and not through insurrection. So it's not, we shouldn't treat section three as, oh, they had one theory in section one, another theory in section three, they're completely independent, they just stuck them there by accident. They're there in the same amendment because they're intimately connected. And, and that's connected to even the title of your recent book, Mark, yeah. right? Punish treason, reward loyalty. Mm-hmm. Which obviously is uh, deals with this section among among others. Um, okay, well, so now what we're doing is I think we're talking a little bit about the overall purpose of the of this section, or even of the even going beyond uh, this section alone. Um, and you're saying that's well, it's, a lot of it is about getting the politics right, um, so that people are not in power that will undermine. Um, the guarantees that we're offering in other parts of the amendments. Okay, so I'd like to, to go a little bit from this uh, purposive uh, argument, and maybe we'll come back to it as we, you know, as we go along, to, to looking at what it is in the text of the amendment or, or in other aspects of the amendment, the history of the amendment, the structure of the amendment, that makes people think that it doesn't apply to Donald Trump. I guess what we do here is we start with the text. So I read, I read the text to you. And it seems to me there are really three or maybe four places in the amendment that one might trip over in terms of whether Donald Trump is, you know, sort of covered under the amendment. The first would be where in the, in the text that says, no person, dot, 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 shall hold any office, dot, 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 under the United States. So I guess the question there would be a question about the presidency rather than the president. So is the presidency an office uh, such that a violator of Section 3 would be disqualified from holding it? So there might be other offices, uh, you know, that that he would be disqualified from, but not the presidency, okay? And that would come down to the question in part then of... Uh, is it an office, and is it an office under the United States? So, uh, Gerard, how do you read the uh, 14.3 on this question? And how do other people read it that might perhaps, you know, t- take issue with your reading? Right. So first, of course, I testified about this in the Colorado case, so I won't repeat all of that here. But the first thought is the language is broad, any office, Right. The fact that it, it doesn't use a particular word like president or secretary of war or secretary of the treasury, th- that's not the point. Right. Constitutional language is meant to be general and broad. Second is a thought that it was pretty widely held view at the time that Jefferson Davis was ineligible to be president of the United States under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment and could only be made eligible if he got amnesty from Congress. Many, many people, including Bingham, said this. Now, that could only be true if the presidency was covered by Section 3. There's there's no other way. Uh, Now, 
So what is the argument against that other than, well, if I give you a dozen examples, yeah, but I want five dozen, you know, like that it's whatever it is, isn't enough. This is great. Now, you have to remember audience, two things. One, John Bingham, whom Gerard invoked, is a really important person. Mark mentioned this as well. John Bingham, who is a member of Congress, is by acclamation today recognized as kind of the James Madison of Section 1 of the 14th Amendment, at least, that he played a really important role in crafting language about the privileges and immunities of citizens and the rest. And Gerard invoked John Bingham, saying, oh, John Bingham thought that Jeff Davis couldn't be president. And that's, that's not a small thing. That's a big thing if you know something about the 14th Amendment. John Bingham is a really big actor. Abraham Lincoln, who's no mean judge of talent, had picked Bingham to carry out various offices. Lincoln was very impressed by, by Bingham. Audience members, what you also need to know, this is all on Bingham, is not only is he a big deal, you know, like the James Madison of this era, but the biographer of Bingham, the main biographer of Bingham is, is named Gerard Magliocca. He wrote the book on this a long time ago. And so he knows what he's talking about with John Bingham. Okay, so you just got Ron Chernow on Alexander Hamilton, audience members, when you got Gerard talking about Bingham, who's a really important person. Okay, and here's a second thing that Gerard said. He's saying, okay, they're words, but like, let's actually, what are they thinking about? If they are all, or lots of them saying, Jefferson Davis, of course we don't want him to be a senator again. We, we, and, he, and he had been a senator. We don't want him to be a member of the House. We don't want him to be a cabinet officer. And he had been, I think, Secretary of yeah. War. Okay, If you don't want Jefferson Davis to come back, because of all the things he did, you know, he, he took an oath to the Constitution, and then he broke it, and he waged war against it, insurrection. If, you, if he shouldn't be a representative or a senator or a cabinet officer, you know, just one, like, why should we ever want him to be president? Okay, but that's just not Akil saying that. That's just not Gerard saying that. Gerard just said, that's what they were saying at the time. Like, of course you don't want Jeff Davis in the White House as president. It's not just that you don't want him as presidential elector or state governor or dog catcher or whatever. Of course we wouldn't want him to be president of the United States given what he did to the Constitution, which is, you know, swear an oath to it and then throw it in the gutter. So Gerard gave you two you know, he's, he's very modest in his presentation, but, and, and maybe judges in Colorado don't, state judges, trial judges may not understand all this. Those are big points he just gave you. John Bingham and, 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 and widespread agreement about Jeff Davis, Jefferson Davis and the presidency. Two huge points. Sorry to interrupt, Gerard. No, that's, that, that's okay. I will also point out that there, Mark and I have been through all of these debates, newspaper articles, backwards and forwards. I mean, we can't find a single example of someone who said Section 3 doesn't cover the presidency. I mean, nobody. The dog that doesn't bark. Yeah, and, okay, that's the third point. So you've got Bingham. we got Jeff Davis, can never be president, said a bunch of times, and not a single important person saying, oh, but of course, you, you know, the, the, the presidency is, is somehow exempt from all of this. You know, we don't, we, we don't want him to be dog catcher. We don't want him to be governor. We don't want uh, these oath breakers to be senators or representatives or our cabinet officers, but perfectly okay if they're president. 
Not a single person, they're reporting. Okay, I haven't done the historical sleuthing on, on this. They have, and they're saying they haven't found a single person. And these are honest, serious historians who've written the leading books and articles. And Gerard, just want to confirm, no one else has found a single person saying that. Is that correct? Not, not as far as I know. I mean, I'll wow. defer to Mark if he's, he's got a counterexample, but I don't, I don't think there are any. Not one. And just, wow. just to elaborate, I have first read cover to cover the Congressional Globe for the first session of the 39th Congress that wrote, drafted the 14th Amendment. I, How many pages is that, Mark? Just because, you know, you and I and, and, and Gerard know this. 4,500. How many? 4,500 pages. I, okay, you've read them all. Nothing wow. better to do Good for you, dude. <laughs> but I then have done a word search for every use of officer in the 39th Congress first session, 1865 to 1866, and the 39th Congress second session. What I have discovered, the president is commonly referred to as holding an office, commonly referred to as an officer. No one disagrees. The president and the presidency is frequently referred to as an officer of the government and an officer under the government. Nobody disagrees. I have found about three weeks after Congress sent the 14th Amendment to the states, there was a debate over a provision of another federal statute, which talked about an officer of the government. It involved whether a congressman could moonlight on another job. The committee wrote a report. And what the committee said is, we understand there are provisions in the Constitution of 1789 that use officer in a more limited way. However, in general, for the United States, this is the 39th Congress, a report approved by a 96 to 4 vote. We do not distinguish between officer, officer of, officer under, unless the context makes absolutely clear we intend a narrow technical meaning, the words officer, officer of, and officer under should be interpreted as having the identical scope. That's what they said. And now notice there's been an army of scholars trying to show that Donald Trump isn't an officer. They have not produced a single quote. They have not produced anyone in the drafting or ratification. I'm going through the ratification debates now who offered a reason. Why would you say everybody is disqualified except for a president who never held any other office. There was no logic to that in 1866. There's no logic to that today. So even if there was some doubt about the usage, we might ask, okay, what's the purpose? Why would we have this exclusion? No one's given a reason. So Andy, we once had an episode where we were talking about all the arguments for term limits and we counted up to 18. Let me just count just already the arguments that I've heard. I'm keeping score. Okay. John Bingham, 
That's one. He's big. This is like the James Madison. Jeff Davis. They all forget the word. They're just saying, we don't ever want Jeff Davis to be president of the United States because, you know, after what he did to the Constitution. That's two. And Gerard says, can't find a single person, you know, who somehow says it's not about the presidency. That's three. Then Mark says, and there's no good reason why, you know, why would they, why would you think that? That's four. Now we have this committee report. That's five that actually is addressing the very, very technical question, officer under the Constitution, office under the Constitution, office of the Consti- uh, of the United States, you know, under the United States, in a box with a fox, okay, you know, it's green eggs and ham, okay? And, and, and that, that's, so we're already now at least up to five, it seems to me, and, and that committee report, Mark, and I'm learning stuff for the first time as they're reminding me of all this, he's saying that report is issued right at the moment that American people are being asked to ratify the thing. This is, so this isn't way after the fact. People are being asked to ratify something, and this committee report is telling them exactly you know, what office you know, under and office of mean. And of course, in the Constitution itself, the original Constitution, the president takes an oath, you know, I shall faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And they're, they're, they're removed from office by impeachment and all the rest. So, yes, in some technical situations, they don't receive a commission, okay, um, under the appointments clause, um, the way a cabinet officer. And if I'm on their side, and I am, the, what I would just pray for is something like this. A committee report absolutely focused on this technical issue and released at just the right time for the American people to decide then, do we want to vote yes or no on this thing? So I've counted now at least five things. Wow, wow, wow. Could I give no. you at least six and Gerard gets probably seven or eight? Mm-hmm. I'm okay. going th- let's, let's see if we can get up to 18. I'm going through the ratification debates. Now, it turns out there's not much of a debate. There's a lot of squibs. And there are literally one and two sentence summaries. The one sentence summaries people are getting from the papers, from governors asking the legislature, is this bars past office holders who took an oath from future office. They don't use the words of under. They think they're of no significance. They sometimes say oath to support. They sometimes just say official oath. They say oath of allegiance. They attach no significance to the words Trump claims prove they meant to exclude him and him only from Section 3. Yeah, I'll add that this Jefferson Davis issue is the biggest problem probably for the Trump argument. And so an answer that's been given, because you asked Andy about you know other, other arguments, and one answer that's been given, and most prominently by Kurt Lash, is to say, well, the structure of the Electoral College as set up by Section 3 would prevent Jefferson Davis from becoming president. And the idea there is that all of the presidential electors had to be eligible to serve. They, they couldn't have been former office holders who became Confederates. And people like that would never vote for Jefferson Davis. So you didn't need to disqualify him directly. You could do it kind of indirectly. Now, 
first, uh, nobody said this at the at the time. So, I mean, this is kind of a, a, you know, a new idea. Nobody said this at the time, Kurt. Um, you're my student. I love you. You know, I wrote every letter of recommendation, you know, for every job you've ever held because Kurt's going to be listening here. But Gerard just said one. Nobody said it. Keep going. But nobody said this. That's relevant. And if they did, I want you you know, on your next posting to actually tell us that. And, and we'll make sure the audience um, hears. But why would um, they have um, said uh, it? Because, you know, you guys said earlier that they're, they're, dis, they're not disenfranchising all of the electorate in the South that might serve as an elector. You know, the, someone could be a general under Robert E. Lee and they would still be eligible to be an elector. Right, well, and in Mark fact, Mark said this early. Yeah. It was less radical, and this is where Gerard was about to go with his next point. Before I rudely interrupted him, it's less radical than it could have been. They could have just disfranchised like everyone in the Confederacy, which they didn't. But Gerard, you were going to about to come. Uh, it was a one-two punch, and I and I cut you off after the first part of that one. No, punch. The, the the second punch is that there were in fact hardcore Confederates who were presidential electors in 1868 and voted for the Democratic candidate, including General John B. Gordon, who was Lee's lieutenant at Appomattox, at Gettysburg, and so on. He had not served in the army or in an office before the Civil War, so Section 3 didn't disqualify him. He ran for governor of Georgia in 1868 and lost, and then he was a presidential elector. He'd have been happy to vote for Robert E. Lee to be president. You know, and there were so, other former so Confederates it, who, soldiers, officers, who served as electors in 1868. So that just the idea that the structure was somehow going to prevent somebody who was a former Confederate from becoming president. So we didn't have to actually disqualify such a person. Not only did they not say that, and they said the opposite, but it wouldn't work. So we're hearing an argument, and it's bad both historically and structurally. Here's why it's bad historically. Because the, here's the argument: Oh, you didn't. You we we get rid of Jefferson Davis just because we are explicitly talking about presidential electors, and that solves the problem. Presidential electors, if if uh, if they're covered by Section Three of the Fourteenth Amendment, we somehow don't need to cover the presidency. Historically, that's bad because no one says that. Structurally, that's bad because actually you could be a total Confederate and, and still be a presidential elector if you had never taken an oath that you broke before. And that's why that's where Mark earlier came in. He said, look, Thaddeus Stevens and the real radicals, they would have wanted much more sweeping disqualifications. They didn't quite get that. But surely, you know, if we don't want you to be a presidential elector, if you broke an oath, we don't want you to be president itself, you know, um, if you broke that oath. And it won't, we can't guarantee that you won't, that Jeff Davis won't be president merely by regulating presidential electors. That's a bad structural argument, point one, and has no historical support, point two. Just want to uh, take a, a very quick break for our listeners um, who are uh, hoping to gain continuing legal education credit from this episode. Um, that, as you know, we've been accredited by uh, New Jersey, uh, Pennsylvania, and New York for CLE and virtually every state in the union through reciprocity. So in order to gain that credit, you go to podcast.njsba.com and you enter this week's code, and this week's code is REDRESS. 
R-E-D-R-E-S-S, Redress. Thank you again to the New Jersey State Bar Association for partnering with us on this. When I started this discussion here, I, I, I was talking about the you know, this notion of the presidency as an office that people would be excluded from, that you could be excluded from other offices, but not from the presidency. But then there's also the question of the fact that Donald Trump was president. He wasn't, you know, a senator, a representative, an elector, you know. So then the question becomes, did he hold an office, civil or military, under the United States? First of all, did, you know, did he hold an office, civil or military, under the United States? And you're saying, well, when they talk about under the United States or of the United States or whatever, those are, are not significant uh, linguistic differences. And that the framers of the, in 1868 specifically you know, disavowed any such uh, difference. Um, is there an argument so, on, the, so, so, on the other side about that? Clarify for the audience, there are two points. One, the presidency isn't covered, and we've just identified at least seven or eight reasons why that's actually not a good argument. Second and distinct argument is Trump isn't a covered oath breaker because the oath that he took is not actually, doesn't satisfy the, the relevant uh, language of Section 3 because, oh, he took an oath to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution as president rather than to support the Constitution as a general in the army or cabinet officer or a judge or a senator or something. So two different arguments. The presidency isn't covered at all. And we said, no, that doesn't make any sense. And there's no evidence for that whatsoever. And second, oh, this oath-breaking that, that, that Donald Trump did engage in, if you, if you believe that he engaged in uh, oath-breaking, somehow, even if he did, it's not covered because his, uh, the oath that he broke was an oath to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution rather than to support the Constitution within the meaning of Section 3. Or somehow it's only certain oaths and it's oaths of people who are officers of or under or you know, in or beyond or whatever um, rather than just like he's an oath breaker. Okay. So that's a separate and distinct argument. Mark had, was – connecting them in some of his earlier comments, but, but Andy's inviting you to now really kind of pivot to, to that question of what kind of oath-breaking is covered by this amendment. Mark, would you like to weigh in on that? Oh, the oath-breaking, they, yeah, so. they say simply, you know, perjurers, people who violate their oaths of office. And one way of simply understanding this, and this connects it to insurrection, there is no violation of an oath to support the Constitution for anyone to advocate a constitutional amendment, for anyone to say, we can make the Constitution better, and there are, here are the means in the Constitution, or in constitutionalism, for making the Constitution better. But what the oath means is that when you attempt to make the Constitution or laws better, you do it by the rules. You don't lose and then obstruct people violently from carrying out the Constitution as it is the laws as is. This is why 
people talk about Section 3 would disenfranchise people who vote for Donald Trump. Well, the first thing to note is, of course, there are a great many candidates say, I'm Donald Trump without the baggage. Same policy. Those people can vote for those people. But Donald Trump, on January 6th, before and after, attempted to disenfranchise everyone who voted for Joe Biden. And the people who voted for Joe Biden were more than the people who voted for Donald Trump. More importantly, the people who voted for Donald Trump were more in enough states so that Joe Biden won the Electoral College than Donald Trump. That was also disenfranchisement. So what the oath says is we're not simply talking about disenfranchising people for the greater good. We're talking about disenfranchising or preventing the disenfranchisement of the majority, of the constitutional majority of people who have voted for this constitution, for these laws. Yeah, I would add that the theory that's being put forward that Trump is not an officer of the United States, right? That would treat him differently from all other presidents since 1868. Right. So all other presidents since 1868 were covered by Section three because they served in some other position before they were president. They were elected, appointed or they were a military officer. So it's not just to say that we're treating presidents differently. It's that we're going to be treating one president differently from all others. Now, why would that make sense? Right. Why should Donald Trump get a special rule? Uh, you know, in other words, if Ronald Reagan had engaged in insurrection against the Constitution, then we would have said, oh, well, he would have been covered because he was governor of California years before he became president. Well, so what? I mean, right, that has nothing to do with engaging in insurrection. I mean, to my mind, a lot of the arguments for giving Trump an out here are really arguments that say he should get amnesty. You know, that that for whatever reason you think that he should get amnesty. You know, that is when uh, Nixon was pardoned by Ford, it wasn't because Nixon wasn't guilty, right, or probably guilty. It was because, well, we think it's in the best interest of the nation that he be pardoned. So if someone wants to say, look, notwithstanding the fact that Trump engaged in insurrection, it's in the best interest of the country to let him run. Okay, you can make that argument, but you got to make it to Congress. You know, you got to and you got to convince two thirds of each House of Congress to do it, not an argument that the courts can make. I think that's actually a brilliant point that I haven't heard anybody make before, the first part there. You know, that people, when they say, well, you know, the presidency is different, um, really, that argument is belied by the fact that what they're really saying is that Trump is different, right? Instead of comparing, you know, presidents to, let's say, senators, or presidents to judges, or presidents to dog catchers, or people, um, really, what you, if you compare Trump to other presidents, the only difference is that he never served in any other office. So for that to be a real difference, we would have had to say, well, okay, when they did this, they meant to exempt presidents that had never served in any other office. And what would the possible rationale be for that? So I think that's an even deeper purposive argument than the one that that we've expressed before. And I wanted to jump in on just this purposive point. No one denies 
that if you take an oath to support the Constitution as a cabinet secretary and you violate that oath, you know, by um, engaging in insurrection against the United States and the Constitution of the United States, no one denies that if you took an oath to support the Constitution as a cabinet officer, you can't be a cabinet officer again unless properly pardoned. Okay. What sense would it make putting everything together if you took an even more solemn oath in front of all America to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution, and you broke that oath, that somehow you should be uh, eligible to be president of the United States again. How does that work if we're actually asking about what this is really all about? There are two arguments textually. One is it's not covered. The president's presidential oath taking is not covered because it's about officer under, officer of, or whatever. And Mark says they actually issued a committee report saying no, that's not you know what it's about. Two, and I alluded to this, and I'm not sure Gerard and Mark you know, expressly address it just because it's, it's, it's so silly, I, I think. But, oh, the president didn't take an oath. Donald Trump didn't take an oath to support the Constitution. You know, he took a different oath to preserve, protect, and defend it. So then it's not covered. Okay. Really? Preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution is not support the Constitution? Uh, it makes no sense well, to say if it's about oath-breaking. Mark said especially in these squibs that Mark was talking about, as, as this is being described to the American people deciding whether to vote yes or no, he's saying it's not about all Confederates, you see, because that would be a more radical sweeping disqualification. They're not disfranchising all Confederates. They're not actually rendering ineligible for office all Confederates. They're addressing a certain kind of oath-breaking and, and in a poetic and proportionate way. You break your oath, you shouldn't actually have the same kind of position going forward um, if you break your oath. Well, I'd like to hear from from maybe Mark. You can you can enlighten us on. I mean, what are people that dispute this? What are they saying? How does it? How are they saying it makes sense? Um, because it does seem, you know, on its face. I mean, why is it? Or like the chief chief justice said in the oral argument in the Rahimi case. Why is that not the end of the case? Um, I think there are two kinds of arguments. The first is a bit, how do we know George Washington had five fingers on his right hand? <laughs> because it turns out it's sufficiently odd that nobody actually says, wow, George Washington, you have five fingers on his right hand. I met George Washington, he has five fingers on his right hand. But in some sense, the opposite of commentary is taken as, gee, they didn't resolve that, when the evidence is the reason why nobody said, well, of course, the president is covered. It was obvious from their discourse. And that's what Gerard and I have been trying to do. The second kind of argument comes from Stephen Calabresi. And Calabresi's argument goes like this. Calabresi concedes, everybody thought the president was an officer. But it turns out there's this rule of statutory or constitutional construction, which he admits they didn't think of, but there is a rule we impose upon them 
that technical meanings of words govern unless the context clearly says otherwise. And he then says, well, the technical meaning is the president is not an officer of or an officer under. So tough luck, people on section three. You tried, you didn't do it. Now, there's one thing that's right about the Calabrese argument, which is sometimes we know in contract law, people fail to achieve what they wanted to achieve because they made language mistakes. But here they announce, here are the meanings of all words. So it seems that what we're doing is we're imposing a bizarre 21st century canon of constitutional interpretation that they would not have recognized. And that's not originalism to play. I'm building on Mark. You know, this, let's call this the Simon Says argument. The mother may, oh, you didn't say Simon Says. Oh, you didn't say mother may. But they weren't playing Simon Says. Steve, I love you. I'm about to actually in in a few minutes just after this podcast teach a class with you. But they weren't playing Simon Says. They weren't playing Mother Maya. Maybe you're playing that game, but that's not originalism and that's not taking remotely seriously. It's a constitution we're expounding. Ordinary people are actually, you know, being asked to say yes or no to this thing. And now you're actually playing ducks and drakes with them and not taking seriously what they are trying to do. And Mark uh, mentioned this much earlier. What they're trying to do is to punish treason and reward loyalty. And we need to take that seriously, okay? Because we've just gone through a great civil war that was insurrection on steroids, and we should take seriously their response to that. Can you think of any place in the Constitution where that where some where there is something like that 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 people over the years have applied your this Calabrese rule of of statutory construction to constitutional provision where the clear yes. intent of the uh, where the clear intent of the framers was otherwise? Yes, courts haven't done it, but this is Frederick Douglass's approach to slavery in the Constitution. He says, oh, fugitive, what we call the Fugitive Slave Clause, it doesn't use the word slave, okay? Um, everyone knows that it's about slavery, but since you didn't use the word slave, I'm going to pretend, I, Frederick Douglass, that it wasn't about slavery at all. It was only about apprentices and indentured servants. But courts didn't quite you know, buy that. But Frederick Douglass said, oh, the Constitution really isn't about slavery at all, because they didn't use the Simon Says word slave. So we have seen that um, before. And Frederick Douglass is a very interesting thinker, Andy, and um, it's going to be featured pretty prominently in the book I'm working on. But that's what comes to my mind. Maybe Gerard and Mark have other examples. None come to mind. But one thing that I did think of while you were, were talking was that the term officer of the United States in Section 3, you could say was sort of re-ratified or re-glossed in 1868, just in the way that Akhil has said that the Bill of Rights was re-ratified or re-glossed then. So you really have to pay more attention to what people were saying about it in 1866 to 1868 
rather than what they might have been saying about it in 1787, because the same term is being used again in the Constitution. Right. And let me just say one thing about, while Mark thinks about whether he wants to jump in on this, here's the reason why Frederick Douglass says what he says. Because slavery is evil. It's, it's, it's wrong. It, Abraham Lincoln writes, I think it's the letter to Albert Hodges, if slavery is not wrong, nothing is wrong. I cannot remember a time I did not so believe and, and so feel. It's visceral. So if you think slavery is fundamentally evil, it's contrary to natural law, it's not preposterous to say, if you're going to do something that's really pro-slavery, damn it, we're going to make you say it really clearly. Okay, because actually it is such an unnatural and evil thing. We have rules of construction that force clear statements of a certain sort. And we have all been saying here is there's nothing comparable when it comes to why we would, when it comes to Donald Trump, why we would want to have some special rule here uh, that, that somehow um, oath breaking applies if anyone else breaks an oath, but not if a president breaks an oath. And the disqualification applies to every other, you know, important provision of government, cabin officer, judge, senator, representative, even dog catcher, but not to the presidency. There isn't anything comparable here to the special intuition that Frederick Douglass had, which is a powerful legal and moral intuition that slavery is deeply wrong. Just a small by the way side, I thought of another example where the plain text be damned. And that is the history of the protective tariff and the South Carolina exposition, where the Constitution rather clearly gives Congress the power to have duties. And the argument against protective tariffs is it turns out, no, you can only have a duty when its sole purpose is to raise revenue. You can't have a duty when its purpose is to help American industry. So that might be another example. So they come up. And people make these arguments in history. They're usually not very effective for all the reasons Akil gave. So um, are there other arguments that people have been making about to the effect that the presidency is not an office? Um, I mean, this business about office under the United States or office of the United States, I think you've disposed of to some degree. But um, what about the arguments that it's not an office or he's not an officer at all. So one of the arguments which was mentioned earlier uh, but, and was kind of dismissed out of hand without getting into it too much was the question about you know being appointed or having a commission. Um, that's another argument that I think Professor Calabresi has made, as well as uh, I think uh, Michael Mukasey also made that argument. And as we said before, Andy, he swears, I, Donald J. Trump, do solemnly swear, that will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. The impeachment provisions are all about removal from office. Now, I don't know how you, how you and about disqualification from office. Um, so I, I don't know quite what it means to hold an office but not be an officer. Now, I'll tell you actually where some of this, these complexities arise. And with all due respect to Michael Mukasey, he reads these little memos maybe from the Office of Legal Counsel, which are all about commissioning various people for assistant deputy, um, undersecretary, blah, blah, blah. 
okay? And yes, actually, there it's about you're an officer when you get a certain commission, and legislators aren't officers. You see, they don't get that commission. And so there are cases all about that. But here's where it comes from historically. Historically, the king was singular, and he was the font of all honor, and actually, he had no peers, and he made other people officers, but he wasn't himself quite an officer. He was a different sort of thing. And in England, you can't impeach him, okay? <laughs> and there's a problem in England when you can't impeach You can impeach anyone else. You can't impeach him. So you know what you have to Kill do? Him. You have to cut yeah. his head off, okay? That's actually how they did it. Now, in America, we have a different system, and we put everyone under law, including the king himself, who, you know, in an early period says, you know, I'm actually king by divine right, by the grace of God. And we say, no, you are, in effect, the highest officer in our system, your military and civilian, and you are impeachable, okay? And the king is not. Today, the king is not impeachable. But presidents from the beginning, so there, was, there were some little linguistic wrinkles that occurred when America moves away from a, a monarchical system. But if we're actually trying to figure out what they were trying to do and why, then the president's just simply the highest officer in the land. And that's how we talk all the time. And Mark says that's how they talked all the time in the 14th Amendment Civil War context. And Gerard said the same thing. And truthfully, they said all this at the founding too, Steve. I love you, but no, okay? You're just actually not making any sense when you're trying to treat the presidency differently from everything else. When the whole point of the American system is presidents are subject to the law just like everyone else. They are officers, like other officers. There is a technical difference. They do not receive a commission. They do not commission themselves, okay, the way um, Marbury got his commission in Marbury versus Madison. The commission equivalent is, in fact, Andy, um, when the, the Congress says you have been duly elected on January 6th. That's actually the commission equivalent for the presidency and the vice presidency. In America, it's the Congress, in effect, commissioning the president and the vice president, but doing so in a slightly different way than other officers are commissioned. I understand. I, I've read those cases too, General Mukasey, uh, Professor Calabresi. They have nothing to do with what we're talking about um, right now. Re really, they don't. Mark, Big Mark, your comment on this? Um, other than I agree, uh, I don't know the. I cannot profess universal love for characters I don't know well. They seem to be nice people, but it's fairly obvious. At least I said I consider myself an historian. I don't consider myself an originalist. There, there are lots of reasons for that. But as an historian, what I can simply say is they thought they were including the president. They didn't comment on, on it the way it would be very nice for an historian for the same reason they didn't say, wow, Lyman Trumbull, wow, John Brigham, you have five fingers on your right hand. It was obvious to them. And Mark, 
Mark, just hang on just one second. You say you're not an originalist, but actually originalism is a big tent and you are an originalist and welcome aboard. The water is fine. You've been making brilliant originalist arguments about what they said and why they said it and what they were trying to do. That's great originalism. Mark, you don't have to fight well, the label. What you've been doing is constitutional originalism of a very impressive well, sort. I'd like well, to really. know why you, well, hold on, Nikhil. I mean, you, you know, why does Mark think that this is different right. from originalism? Yeah, I'm interested well, there's a number of different things. One, I take no position on, say, Board and uh, Paulson. Say they're not going to look at legislative history because properly um, originalism is only the meaning of the text, not the legislative history. And the historian looks at legislative history. Um, right. But so do many yeah, originalists. Okay, that, that's, not the only, yeah. that's, the, that's not the only definition of originalism. Whatever. Um, in at times, for example, I've done a survey of insurrection. I can tell you what legal elites thought was an insurrection. I can tell you what some members of Congress thought was an insurrection. I can't tell you whether who the character of Jack Ray Cocos, Joe the Plowman, I can't tell you what the average person in a law cabinet in Illinois thought was an insurrection. I'm also a believer that we are not interpreting a text. We are interpreting a tradition, which includes precedent and other things. So it is, in some sense, making sense of the entire tradition. There is a sense I have, and here, to the extent I identify, I identify with Quentin Skinner, that there are certain features of worlds that are lost to us. Yeah, but, but my, Mark, that's all fine, but... Until the last four minutes, all the arguments that you made, you know, were they weren't about precedent so much, they weren't about tradition so much, they were about what people in the 1860s, you know, were trying to do with words. And you actually were appealing, in effect, to Joe the plumber because you actually said, while people are deciding whether to ratify the thing, there's this committee report that explains what it's all about. You were doing classic originalism, here's the problem. Some people who aren't so good originalists often claim, oh, this is the only thing that's originalism. People like Scalia, who doesn't know any history. Oh, it's only original public meaning and not other stuff. No, originalism is a big tent. It includes lots of people who, um, who are interested fundamentally, Mark, in what you and Gerard and I have all been talking about, and we've been disagreeing with my friend, maybe he's, you know, I don't know how well you know him, but my, my, my dear friend, um, Kurt Lash, and my dear friend, Steve Calabresi, what did the, the framers of the 14th Amendment actually do? What were they trying to do with words? What did the ratifiers at that time understand themselves to be agreeing to? That's just hardcore originalism, as opposed to, you know, what did this court case say in 1952? You know, what did the, the civil rights cases say in 1883 or Lochner say in 1907 or whatever? What we've been doing is 
originalism and, and at a very high level. And thank you for it, uh, Mark. But as I said, you, shouldn't, you don't need to like, resist the label. It's perfectly okay to do originalism. And I think you did it brilliantly for the last hour and a half. Uh, Gerard, if I could, um, do you answer to the label originalist? And, and how do you think about what it is that you do in general and what it is that you have been doing in particular about Section 3 of the 14th Amendment? What kind of arguments do you think you've been making and, and what kind of arguments do you see yourself as making generally as um, a law professor doing constitutional law? Okay, so I would say for Section 3, I am acting as an originalist because all of the relevant evidence basically comes from a 10-year period following ratification of the 14th Amendment. So as long Mm -hmm. as you define originalism a little more expansively, which I think is fair, Mm -hmm. then I think all of what I've been doing is originalist. Now, would I consider myself an originalist more generally? I would say no, because I think of it more in terms of looking at the entire history of a provision. And it seems to me sometimes people pay more attention to the application of a particular provision some years after it's been ratified, really the first time it comes up or the first time people really focus on it closely. And and so I I think of myself kind of like as a historicist, right, maybe, or, but, but originalism seems to me is binding you to a more particular point of time right? 1787, 1791, 1868, whichever provision it is you're talking about. For Moore versus United States, I guess it's 1913. Whereas I I want to take subsequent historical developments into account if they're important. So- But here's why I think that's a mistake, actually, generally and in this context. Because my friends, my dear friends, Mark and Gerard, the tradition is pay no attention to the 14th Amendment, Section 3, just as the tradition in 1953 was pay no attention to the word equal. And the tradition, you know, before Hugo Black comes along is pay no attention to privileges or immunities. That's the tradition, you know. The tradition has been for judges to actually do what judges do, which is to ignore what these Republicans were were trying to do in the 1860s. And people like John Marshall Harlan, the elder, and Hugo Black come along and say, no, damn it, we're going to take seriously what we, the people, actually agreed to. We agreed to equal, we agreed to privileges or immunities, we agreed to broad Section 5 power, and I'm saying we, you know, we agreed to Section 3. The tradition is actually, and this is where we began our conversation, just ignore all that stuff. So we are making classic originalist arguments telling judges to actually overcome their resistance, which is based on the fact that, oh, judges haven't done this before on Section 3. You know, that's, that's where we began our conversation. Yeah, I, think, I was going to say, I think in some ways we're coming full circle here because I think all of us on this call are of a mind to say, well, if we can show that this is precisely what they were trying to do and precisely what they meant by these words in 1868, then the, the case is over. Okay, then, then we've decided. Then we've made clear, you know, what what this means. Um, so, but perhaps, and and there's a certain intuition about that. I think it's it's, it's very it, it sounds very intuitive. Okay, but that doesn't seem to be the end of it for some judges and that sort of thing. So the question is: Is this 
uh, just the, that the judges are acting in another tradition, perhaps in the tradition that some people might call, you know, judicial minimalism or judicial restraint, or perhaps just a notion that the just being conservative in a Burkean sense that they're not trying to change too many things at once, and this is very radical, and maybe they're acting in it. But is that legitimate? Is that actually law? Um, and again, because we have this intuition, to us it might seem wrong, but I guess what I would ask you is to take a step back and, and ask you, is, a, is this a legitimate way of conducting jurisprudence and conducting you know, constitutional interpretation and, and implementation? Let's we'll start with, with you, Mark. Um, one, to go backwards a little bit, we should remember that of the judges who have said Trump is still on the ballot. They've done so on technical matters of state election law on which the 19th century, I suspect, has nothing interesting to say. And if the 19th century has something interesting to say, I don't know it. So they could be entirely right. It simply is a technical matter. They have said, guess what? This officer at this time cannot make the decision. So, in fact, you know, if they had appealed to a third grader in Des Moines to say, is Trump off the Iowa ballot, we would all agree that the third grader should say, not my decision to make. And that would not be sectioned. Gerard, what's your, what's your thought on, this, on these questions of interpretation? And I guess this goes back to this radicalism question about the 14th Amendment again. Well, I think first, when you're asking judges to do something unprecedented, which would be the case if you disqualify a presidential candidate, a significant candidate, there's always going to be a certain amount of resistance or pushback to that, probably no matter what the theory uh, is that the judge has. Okay. Secondly, there's a mix of different approaches that you can see represented on the bench. I mean, if you believe, for example, in a kind of minimalism or that sort, okay, that's going to explain perhaps your attitude towards this. If you believe in a kind of, your job is to do representation reinforcement, sort of in a John Hart Ely sort of way, that's going to frame how you might think about it one way or the other. And, you know, you can see different styles of, rep- of uh, philosophy or different philosophical approaches represented all across the bench. Now, I mean, one thing that's interesting, it seems to me, about the way these cases are going to unfold is you're going to get a state Supreme Court that's going to weigh in. And, you know, we don't often see state Supreme Courts weighing in in the first instance on some major constitutional question. Usually we're going through the federal courts. Okay. Um, And so that too might represent a a different attitude. I don't know much about the Colorado Supreme Court. Okay. But I'm just saying they're going to look at these kinds of questions rather differently probably than the four of us are, or maybe even that the U.S. Supreme Court will. That might generate something interesting because I think everybody understands that this is all a prelude to a U.S. Supreme Court case. So, I mean, the course of the litigation will, I think, have more of an impact on what happens at the end than might otherwise be the case for issues that are more familiar, where we kind of know where all the sort of arguments are. I mean, I think here they're being developed more. So I think getting that kind of perspective uh, might might be helpful, uh, even if it's a different because it's a different perspective than we would normally get in these kinds of high profile constitutional cases. Well, I just like to try to pin you down a little bit more um, because if you believe that the Fourteenth Amendment 
means in section three means certain things, um, such as we've discussed that you know officer includes the presidency that his oath is covered under fourteen three that uh, you know um, that and so forth that all those questions are are in your mind definitively resolved by your research um, and that of Marx and and, and others. Um, and then if we stipulate to you that uh, Trump engaged in insurrection, just stipulate that, then is it legitimate nevertheless to say, well, okay, the Constitution says this, but I'm a judicial minimalist and I don't like to take things too quickly, so therefore I'm going to rule contrary to what you have concluded. Is well, that legitimate? No, I would say no, but with a particular emphasis on the fact that Section 3 answers that question by providing for amnesty. So in other words, you know, if it's some other provision, well, maybe we'd look into to what extent does the provision delegate any kind of discretion, you know, to, to judges. But here it's, it's a pretty clear distinction between law and politics. The politics is for Congress in deciding to give somebody amnesty. The law is for the courts to apply without considering all of that stuff. So for Section 3, I would say no, it would not be legitimate. That actually is an interesting answer to the political question uh, doctrine that people have raised. Yes, Mark, do you want to weigh in on that? Yeah, there's actually an interesting structure, and it's expected by the framers, and I'm still working this out as I go through debates, and that is the framers expected the states would first respond both in equal protection and in section three, then Congress would backstop if we don't like the way you're interpreting the 13th Amendment. Here comes the Freedmen Bureau Bill and the Civil Rights Act of 1866. We don't like the way you're interpreting the 14th Amendment. Here comes first the Civil Rights, the, the, re, the reenactment of the Civil Rights Act, Civil Rights Act of 1867, and the First Enforcement Act, which has provisions for disqualification. So in fact, there is, the law is integrated with politics. States are expected to take the lead. Congress then decides, not simply whether this particular person should be given amnesty or not, but whether states are doing a good job, once again, sec Section 5 doesn't say Section 1 shall be, Congress shall have the right to make legislation by Section 1. It says for all of them, it's clear. As long as, they say, as long as states are doing their job, we'll stay out. So again, this view that it's, Section 3 is not self-executing, they expected Section 1 to be executed by the states, Section 4 to be executed by the states, Section 3. Congress comes in when they feel states are doing an inadequate job, either implementing rights or limiting rights. Okay, so with the Supreme Court of Colorado hearing this next week, oral arguments, I think that uh, you, know, we're, you listeners are well poised to, uh, to, to take in that argument, and hopefully the court is also well poised, having heard these arguments, if they, uh, if they have so chosen. And I really want to thank our experts, uh, Professor Gerard Magliaca and Professor Mark Graber, 
And I guess I want to follow it up with just one more question, which is, um, after we hear from the Colorado Supreme Court, uh, maybe you'd be willing to uh, come back on and and uh, reflect on this some more. Definitely. Question mark. Of course. And, and please say of yes. Course. Thank you so much. Okay. Thanks, guys. This was yeah. great. And, great job. Yeah, thank it's you. really, thank really you. a treat for us and, and I know for our audience. So thank you very much, and we'll be back next week. Thank you.